This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. David Hess was commissioned as a U.S. Foreign Service officer with USAID in 1980. During his career with aid, he served as a project development officer in the West Africa region office in Cote d'Ivoire, rural development project officer in Peru, director of the alternative development office in Bolivia, program officer in USAID's Africa Bureau in Washington, D.C., supervisory program officer in Guinea, environment and energy officer in India, supervisory program officer in Rwanda, and deputy mission director in Mozambique. His final aid assignment was director of USAID's Office of Natural Resources Management in Washington, D.C. Since retirement in 2006, Hess has worked for Conservation International as vice president for Asia programs, the Millennium Challenge Corporation as senior director for environmental and social assessment, International Resources Group senior manager for the Environmental and Natural Resources Division, and USAID PPL Bureau as consulting senior advisor for strategy and project design. He currently serves as a consulting senior advisor for strategy, project design, and monitoring and evaluation for USAID Tanzania. I spoke with David in California. During this interview, you'll hear the call quality of my interview with David change in the middle. We had some technical difficulties while conducting the interview and decided to change from a Skype connection to a phone connection. Hello, David. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Hi, Stephen. It's it's a real pleasure. Thank you. David, you have a unique perspective or, or a perspective that we haven't heard a lot of on the Terms of Reference podcast yet in that you had a career with USAID. You've been in the business going on 35 plus years. And I really think that our listeners will benefit from your both retrospective and prospective views on where we've been and where we're going in the development and aid business. Why don't we start by having you just give a brief synopsis of what you're doing now as, as a consultant, but also where you came from, what, what your career looked like. Sure, Stephen. First of all, you know what I tell people is I'm not senior, I'm just old. I am working right now as uh, an advisor to the program office in the U.S. Agency for National Development Office in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. I've been doing this for about going on 15 months. And what I have done with them is to facilitate... Um, cheerlead, gestate, a process that led to the production and uh, approval of a $2 billion five-year strategy for how U.S. foreign assistance will be invested in Tanzania over the period 2015 to 2019, five years. It's been a great process. I have been able to work with some great people both in USAID Tanzania and in Tanzania in general, meeting some of the folks in government and private sector and civil society. So it's been a real great process. Now, uh, since the strategy has been approved, I've been helping them design their projects that will actually produce the results that they are committed to achieving in their strategies. And now I'm also helping them set up a monitoring evaluation system that will rigorously measure and hopefully adaptively manage the uh, implementation of all their projects so that they achieve their results in all the different sectors that they're working in in Tanzania. Tell me, you know, one of the first questions that pops into my mind about this is how does consulting for a program like this feel different or give you a different perspective on being on the other side of the table in the USAID office, you know, as the bureaucrat or as the the aid worker? That's a fun question. It's fun in the sense that this has actually been the most fun gig of my several jobs since I retired from the USAID Foreign Service in 2006. What I really am enjoying about it is that I get to work technically 
I get to work uh, in terms of the things I know about developing strategies for an overall development portfolio in a, in a country. And I'm not involved at all in inter-office politics, in relationships with the embassy. I'm just there to advise them and to work through their, help them work through their processes to produce the best technical and uh, meaningful development results. So it's kind of like a, a win-win, for, certainly for me, and I think that they seem to be appreciating what I'm providing for them. But it's just been a lot of fun without a lot of pain of worrying about whether where my career is going, et cetera, when you, when you are working within any particular organization, particularly in, a, in, a, in USAID. Do you believe that you have sort of seen the best of both worlds in, in the fact that, you know, you took a career all the way to retirement and then you were able to raise your hand and, and be a consultant because you, you, choose to, you, know, you chose to keep working, et cetera. What about for someone who maybe does that a little earlier in their career? Are there strategies that you think would help them to be successful as consultants or are there pieces that, you know, they want to bring from their bureaucratic life to the table that might help them as well? Well, Stephen, I'm going to step back just a second and talk about what I advise young people, people who are thinking about getting into the development field, and that is that there is no replacement for me for having an on-the-ground, extensive, one, two, or year, year or longer experience at the grassroots of development. Frankly, I think that either Peace Corps or a Peace Corps-like experience such as I had in when doing my uh, and anthropology research in the Bolivian jungle, some kind of long-term experience with the people for whom and with whom you will be working for the rest of your development career is really essential. So, you know, I, I think it's great that people could, could, could come out of a very um, prestigious and, and, and wonderful graduate school, for example, and, and go on into straight into management, consulting, etc., but Frankly, I think that there's no replacement for getting a real grounding with and for and through and by the people for whom you're, you're actually going to be working, you know, the rest of your time in development. So that's, that's the first step I think I strongly recommend. And, you know, there are a lot of people that have to say, that say you know, how can I, you know, what am I going to do with my college loans? What am I going to do with this and that? But for now, well over 50 years, people have been doing that and solving that kind of issue. And, and starting out their development careers, you know, with some kind of sacrifice so that you have the kind of real close knowledge and experience and personal experience with poverty, with, when, with, with the poor and the people that you'll be working with. So anyway, that's my advice on the beginning of a career. That arc is very common. So Peace Corps, and then you see many Peace Corps volunteers come back to a master's degree. Do you think that continuing that education is just, you know, that's where the bar is today or... Is it possible to, to jump right into sort of a more, you know, traditional career path or, or, you know, just cut your teeth in an organization at that point? I think essentially could do that uh, quite readily, depending, of course, on the person and on the particular Peace Corps or Peace Corps-like experience. I mean, you've got all kinds of ways to go forward in gaining experience that you build upon for increasing responsibilities, et cetera. And one of them would be to, for example, go from Peace Corps to working for a development organization, either from civil society or USAID or some other foreign aid agency or directly for a foreign government or something like that. 
But the thing about it is that there is a good deal of academic disciplines and, and rigor that can be very useful for um, being a professional in development and going on for some years working as a professional in development. So I also strongly recommend that the graduate, a program appropriate for the interests of the particular person and what they want to do in development is something that, that ought, to, ought to really be considered and, you know, certainly helped me, I think, to have a Ph.D. in anthropology, uh, not for the, the three letters in front of my name or the doctor in front of my name, but because of what I learned about analyzing problems and writing about them and listening to people and understanding contexts uh, in which I've been practicing development now for so many years. That really echoes the advice from some of our other guests, or actually the majority of our guests, that it's really about that data analysis skill, both quantitative and qualitative. It's about being being contextual and understanding those critical analysis skills. As someone who, you know, as you said, 38 years in this business, a hearty career behind the desk at USAID, how has aid changed over the last not only let's say let's say 30 years but really recently you know in the 10 or 15 years since you've been been out how have you seen a change how are aid, aid agencies changing the way they do funding how they're responding how they're partnering and what does that mean for NGOs looking for that funding well i tell you i have obviously been around quite a bit of time and i've seen lots of cycles of changes and fads and fashions going in and out i have been pretty much involved with the things that are happening, at least on the cutting edge, in U.S. foreign aid in for the last few years since I've been come back as a contract consultant. And I would say that there are lots of opportunities for uh, nonprofits, for NGOs, and for for-profits and consulting firms and others who want to help AID achieve its results. I think that, as you have heard recently, the one thing that's changed the whole picture are, are the mega donors such as Gates and some of the others that have come in with a significant amount of funding and somewhat different approaches and certainly different bureaucracies. They're, you know, they're not free of bureaucracy at all, I'm sure, from what I understand. But they've come in with a demand for rigor on, on precision of results anticipated and then on measurement of those results and this whole industry that's developed around sort of the more scientific impact evaluation work, that's, that's a sort of a new trend. I think that one of the things I've seen really increasing in the last 15 years at least is the importance of partnering of private sector funding along with civil society participation and, and uh, the uh, bilateral and multilateral public donors partnering together to achieve results that all are interested in achieving. And I think that, that this, the growth of that has, has become really important. There are these major uh, international programs like the uh, was Accelerated Vaccination Program, the Gavi or wherever it is, and a lot of the other Gates things and, and the uh, other international efforts that are all based on really effective partnering. That's, that has grown a lot in the last 15 years. Tell me about that a little bit more. Partnering is huge. Um, you, you can't see a tender go out on aid or DFID or any of the major donors without, you know, five firms on it. Uh, the IDIQ, uh, you know, that we're all familiar with these days has sometimes literally hundreds of partners on it. Does it make a difference of, of who you're working with anymore? How do these partnerships work? Uh, do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, you know, I've, I saw it coming in the last, certain last six to ten years of my time in aid. And when I retired in 2006, I was, was definitely 
in full swing with all kinds of integrated efforts and, and partnering. But I worked at a large NGO. I worked at Conservation International. I worked at the Millennium Challenge Corporation. And I worked at three or four consulting firms in various ways. And I've seen what you're talking about in, in terms of requirements from uh, donor funders for significant and real partnering so that you get the best combination of capacities and, and uh, approaches from all these different kinds of organizations that come together in teams to bid on, on things, on opportunities, whether they're for grants or contracts. When someone on the aid side is sitting there looking at a proposal or looking at a consortium, that's a fairly strong criteria that they're looking for about how are their complementary skills or how are they filling gaps that will respond to the particular tender? Well, first and foremost, the importance of it is laid out precisely, certainly in, in, in USAID terms, in the request for proposal or the request for assistance. They say specifically what kinds of partnering that they're looking for, what kinds of benefits they expect from that partnering, what results they expect from that partnering. And then they give to precise amounts, percentages of points they're going to give in scoring proposals. And if they give, you know, more to partnering, you're going to get more emphasis from the people that are proposing on partnerships. And then you get it more in the scoring of the proposal. So it's pretty clearly laid out, certainly in USAID terms. And I, you know, I would imagine that other tenders, as you call them, uh, from other organizations lay out with some precision the degree in which they're emphasizing partnering. How about local partnership? We know that the now almost former administrator, Raj, really made a push to get 30% of aid funding down to the local quote-unquote level. What's your perspective on that? Is that going to be a, a continuing trend to get money in the hands of sort of the local NGOs the, you know, in the field, in the beneficiary, at the beneficiary level? Was that a fluke or is that the future? Stephen, I tell you this. In the 38 years, I started out 38 years ago in the Bolivian jungle working with a Bolivian NGO that was getting significant funding from USAID to provide assistance to migrants going down to an agricultural colonization zone. That's in the mid-1970s, essentially. And so it's been important throughout the last, certainly, 40 years to, to be strengthening organizations in the countries where you're working so that when the, when the funding is over, then they uh, can continue to, to achieve the results and continue to do the things that they're trying to achieve during the project. So it's been an important emphasis for a long time. And so like all the cycles and trends that I talked about, it has come back and forth in terms of importance. Right now, certainly under um, administrative shock, it's been very important for USAID to increase the amount of funding and amount of capacity building and strengthening that we are doing in the field in various countries with local organizations, whether they be government, civil society, or private sector. So it is real, it is really important, and it does really matter for the sustainability of the results. Something I'm always interested in, and I, I feel like it's sidestepped in a lot of conversation, is how, in your perspective, how well does USAID play in the same sandbox as other major donors? I'm thinking DFID, I'm thinking GIZ, AUSAID, etc. Are there specific coordination activities? Is there real thought put behind, you know, how do we work together to achieve goals rather than sort of simply achieving political agendas, these kinds of things? Well, that is a change I've seen over, over this long time that I've been in the development field, and that is that I think the USAID has become a much more effective and real partner 
with multilaterals and bilaterals, the ones you mentioned in the World Bank difference and, you know, the French and many of the others. That partnership has meant that at the country level, there are sectoral coordination groups that get together pretty often. Internationally, USAID is a major player in all these different aid effectiveness conferences and stuff like that. It's a, the commitments are real and they're, and they're actually carried through on. And I think it's really to the benefit of USAID's achievement of, of the results that the American taxpayers is, is looking for in funding foreign assistance. And that is that we do the things that we do very well, and we look for complementary and different ways from other donor sources to, to increase the results that we're achieving by working with the other governments and, 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 and the multilateral institutions. I want to turn the conversation back to one of the areas or the trends that you were talking about. You had said earlier, you know, a lot of the work that you do is on monitoring programs or measuring their impact and, and providing evaluation services as a consultant. And you think that a lot of attention is now being paid to, quote unquote, more scientific, uh, rigorous evaluation can you give us an example, a story of some kind of, of program you've worked on either recently or in the, in the past where just blew your expectations away, blew it out of the water where, you know, hey, we're going to give a million dollars here and we got, you know, we just got so much more for our money? I've seen real big successes that I've worked on and I've seen a lot of people who've worked on. I've seen, I've seen you know, <laughs> abysmal failures. Try to learn from those, of course, and we try to accentuate and scale up from the successes. An example in, uh, in Peru. Uh, in the mid-1980s, from 83 to 87 when I was there, I managed a a program that was working with municipalities in a number of different departments or regions in the country to strengthen their regional planning capacities, but also to then deliver some funding for farm-to-market roads, for small-scale irrigation, for improving market infrastructure. We gave one grant to um, a very active, successful, and business-oriented cooperative of Highland peasant farmers, and in this case, they got together and had a whole trout-producing industry. That industry was, you know, they eventually made themselves eligible for a $1 million, very soft, soft interest, soft loan from a bank through which we were channeling funding. And they paid the loan back within two years of getting the loan because they were very efficiently built this uh, trout uh, producing uh, operation. And it also uh, did some freezing and they did export. And within a couple of years, they paid back their loan. Well, I don't know if you know, but remember, but in the, in the mid-1980s in Peru, you had this very active shining path or Sendero Luminoso movement. And this cooperative was so successful uh, at doing exactly what Shining Path was committed against, and that is capitalist-oriented uh, market development, that uh, Shining Path went in and blew up everything for this cooperative and, and, and killed some people. So You mean, I mean, like, you mean was, act literally blew it up? They blew it up, yeah. That's what things they did. They, wow. they used to say the Shining, Shining Path were the modern-day Robin Hoods because they, they uh, robbed the rich and killed the poor. So these guys went in and they, they took out this thing that had been so, so successful. It was so, so successful the, uh, because of, the first of all, the, the Peruvian poor people involved and because it was a good design of a project. So that was a, that was a success, uh, but it turned out very badly because it was such a success. What was your office's response at that time? Was there a lesson about, you know, where the funding was going or was there more thought given to how do you protect in that? Or was it just like, you know, this this kind of stuff happens in, in a locality like this? 
Oh, we went right back in and tried to uh, work with the the uh, rather disheartened people that were left in the operation. And at the time that I left Peru, they were reorganizing and, and trying to get their production back together. And so, you know, we went back to restate the course as best we could with the people that were left with the operation. The lesson was, frankly, that you just keep doing the things that make the most sense. Eventually, that kind of movement, you know, usually burns out and, and, and it fades away. And then that's what's happened with Shining Path. Over the, you know, they, they were defeated. Uh, there was an end to it. And there are some remnants across organizations in, in Peru that have some relationship to that kind of extreme Marxism that, that they espouse. But it ended. And uh, I would say that Peru's on, on the kind of path much more aligned with where these, this particular cooperative is trying to go. On the flip side of that coin, I'd love to hear about a fantastic failure, either while you've been a consultant or while you, know, while you were uh, working for USAID. And specifically, I'm not looking to sort of point a finger and say, ha, you failed, but rather, what's the process for learning from that kind of failure within aid, and how, how have you seen that change over time? Well, the biggest failure, single failure, that I, that I have been involved with is the drug war. And frankly, the policy of seeing the whole drug, illicit drug industry as something that is sort of supply-driven is, is uh, really wrong. And uh, in, certainly in the, uh, in the late 80s when I was working on this in Bolivia, the way in which we approached what we were doing was largely, in terms of foreign policy, approaching it from blaming the suppliers and, and frankly, bl- blaming the, the poor people producing this, these, these bushes, these miracle plants that were producing the coca leaves that produced the cocaine, blaming them for the problem. I think we've come to, a, over the years, a much more balanced approach, but we still have some of that. What we found in uh, evaluating in the mid-'80s what was going on with coca substitution was that there was no production and marketing system in a legal production and marketing system that could challenge the economics for the small-scale farmer, farm family, of producing coca leaves. And so, you know, we, the best economists in the world, the best agricultural economists in the world are, are small-scale farmers, and they knew what made them the most money, and, and, and they continued to produce the stuff for what all we, we introduced. So that is something that has not worked over the years, and, and it, we still have a lot of trouble working, but I think we've learned that it's a, pretty much a, at least a two-sided problem in terms of illicit drugs. Does USAID have mechanisms to, you know, lift these kinds of challenges, uh, you know, have them bubble up in management and leadership to, you know, change policies about how money is allocated or how programs are, are monitored, um, you know, different foci about where, where the money is put so that, you know, a different lever is pushed? Uh, to change social behavior? Yeah, it does. And in fact, I think that the whole, the system that we have, that the USID now has of, of what's called adaptive management, that is learning from the results of evaluations and, and actually being open to changing not only projects but strategies and, and improving the way in which we can aim at and achieve development results is working better than has in, 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 in most of my career. Tell me about now, you know, you're a consultant working from the outside in. You've had stints at MCC. You've worked for some large NGOs. What are your frustrations that you experience now as someone on the outside looking in, as a contractor, as a consultant? 
I guess the frustration would be that it's kind of an odd frustration in the sense that um, I think the direction in which USAID has gone under President Obama and under uh, Administrator Shaw is extremely positive. And frankly, I felt from the outside, again, from when I retired in 2006, that USAID was going the way of being integrated directly into, for all of its system decision-making, into the State Department in the last years of the uh, W. Bush administration. And when I say that, I'm not denigrating the State Department or the work of their work one bit. They have a different mission than USAID in terms of foreign affairs and foreign policy. It's much more policy and politically oriented in general and much different than what USAID does. The idea that long-term strategies and policy setting would essentially be done only in a framework of the State Department making the decisions as it was happening by the end of the Bush administration and its reversal in USAID getting back the decision-making over its strategies and policies and its budgets. That has been a really positive thing. So in a sense, I'm kind of in, in fear of whatever changes occur after the departure of President Obama because these kinds of things can change depending on the orientations of the White House and the person that the next president puts into the State Department. Has that policy change or that movement, again, of the perception of USAID sort of being out of State Department, have you seen that reflected in a change in how contractors or NGOs are operating, language, the, the types of proposals they're submitting, or the types of programming that they're, they're seeking to, to fulfill and that they're identifying? Yeah, because the benefits of USAID getting back its own strategy and policy and project development control means that we get to work on much more long-term issues, which I think is to the benefit and in the interest of the uh, NGO and private sector that works on development community because you're able to, first of all, approach things quite professionally and plan and have you know, be able to plan on what you're going to do for a five-year period and devote the resources to it and then track the results of what you're doing and, and fix things along the course of, of implementing in ways that you don't get when you have a, a much shorter, you know, two-year focus on very sort of transitory kinds of objectives that you get when you have different people making the decisions about where the funding is going. Two more questions for you. Both, I hope, are just fun to answer. We all have go-to stories. You have the benefit of a fairly, you know, long career arc that you get to look back on. But when you, know, when you sit down and have a drink with somebody, you sit down and have a cup of coffee with somebody and they say, hey, you know, what was your favorite story or favorite project or favorite, you know, incident during your time with USAID? What's that go-to story that you tell? How long do we have, Stephen? <laughs> as long as you want. Actually, the first one that comes to mind was just so much fun and professionally satisfying. It was very early in my career when I was based out of Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire, in a regional office of USAID. And I had come to West Africa fresh out of working in the Andes in Bolivia. And I didn't really uh, understand why I had assigned a, a, an anthropologist who did his work in the Andes to be the so, a social scientist and project development officer in, in West Africa. But I was just a kid, and so I, you know, I, I went off and did it. And what I really enjoyed doing so much when I was there was to go up to Mali, which is, I think, a fascinating country, and work on what happens when about 38 or 39,000 people have to move because a dam is being built. 
In this case, it was the Monantali Dam in southwestern Mali. And other donors had decided to, to build this dam and were putting the money behind it. And USAID had chosen to participate in a multi-donor effort, but as the funder of the uh, resettlement project for the people that had to get out of the way of the major dam that was being built. So I knew something about resettlement and because of my dissertation work, and I knew a lot about you know how to approach communities to find out what it is they want to do in resettlement. I was paired with a guy, who an American guy, who spoke the local language, who had a lot of knowledge of that, of that area, and with a very bright project design officer. And the three of us spent about six weeks camping out in the middle of the bush in southwestern Mali, which is way out there. We, they hardly had any roads, much less uh, highways. We were the first people to get to about 36 major villages. We drove in in a couple of land cruisers, and we had officials from the capital city of Bamako with us. And we sat down with these people under the baobab tree. All the elders, the males, of course, the elder males, greeted us. Uh, many, most of them had either river blindness or leprosy or both. It was a very remote area. They hardly ever saw any vehicles. They never saw any foreign people, like, you know, white people. They called tubabs in, their, in the local language. And they never saw officials from, you know, the capital city. And so it was all very, very strange. And I imagine very entertaining for them. So they're all laughing and having a good time. And our teammate who spoke their language, she's an anthropologist also, would tell them that within six to seven years, the water from the river that was flowing maybe half a kilometer away was going to be over the baobab tree by about twice the, the height of the baobab tree. And, of course, everybody burst out laughing. Everybody said, these white people are crazy. <laughs> these foreigners are crazy. But after talking for an hour or two hours about various things, about their land and their customs and everything, then usually they're kind of a ripple that goes through the crowd. And the, maybe the young men that had gone off to the local town to do some work realized that, all these, all these strange people who had so much wealth were obviously not there for no reason. So they would kind of start to believe us. And after, after about six weeks of going around to these villages, we had people talking to us about what it is they actually would want to do if they really had to leave for they had lived for you know, hundreds or thousands of years. We mapped out areas that they would move to based on you know, with the good soils or good, you know, good, close to water sources. But we also mapped them out in terms of where the spirits were either evil or good for them, or where they just obviously couldn't go because of the particular different land tenure or ethnic groups that they would be near. So, I mean, it was really interesting to do that, to start that process off. And it was just very satisfying to actually use something that I had, that I had, uh, that I had learned about in, in applying it in a very interesting context. That's so fascinating. I'm of another generation. Is that kind of experience still available? It certainly is, Stephen, because there's a lot out there still that is very rural and very different than the experiences that most people, in the, certainly in the U.S. or developing country, developed countries come from. I'm stuck in the office in Dar es Salaam, so I'm not going to glamorize what I do uh, I, I really love what I do, and I'm glad I'm doing it, and I think I'm doing a good job. And I think the strategies and projects are really making a lot of sense for, for Tanzania more than anything. But I have colleagues that are getting out there a lot to work direct in, in many interesting areas of Tanzania. 
I have a colleague who was about my age who just led an evaluation of what we're doing with biodiversity conservation and uh, forest management in Tanzania, and he told me some some stories that are very similar to what I just talked about. Very very interesting places that they went to talk to communities very far out and very different experiences. So it's out there, and it's out there to be learned about, to enjoy, to suffer from, because it's not easy, a lot of it. I, one little story I have, when I was doing my research in Bolivia, I went out one day to help cut palm fronds from a part of a forest because we use them to give people to for roofing materials. And I was out there about 35 kilometers up a road, and the rains came, and the rains came like they never had before, you know, have that kind of story. And the truck immediately slipped off the road, and we had 35 miles to slog through to get back to get home. Uh, my Bolivian friends were in better shape at that point than me. They went on ahead. I was by myself slogging through almost knee-deep mud, and I was rather sick at the time. And I just kept thinking, what the hell have I gotten myself into? <laughs> so not all... It's not all easy, but it's certainly, I, I found it in so many ways to be worth it and a, and a great experience. And in fact, I wanted to offer to any of your listeners and readers that if they want to get in touch through Aidpreneur or your website or whatever, I would be happy to give comments, to give ideas, if they want to call it advice, because of the kinds of experiences I've had. I'm, I'm really happy to help people think through the choices that they can make to, to get into the development field. That's great. You know, I, I promised that I only had two more questions, but I actually have one more as well, or a, a third question. What do you think sitting now is the biggest trend or maybe a two or three biggest trends that you see changing the way aid is delivered? You know, people often talk about mobile technologies as a, as a having a really big impact right now. People, Some people talk about different financing options or different financial products and services. Is there one or two that you're really interested in that you think is going to either be a game changer or changing the game now? Yeah, mobile technology is really interesting and can make a lot of difference for a huge number of people that all they need to, need to do is come together or, or even individually to get a cell phone and to get access to market information when you're in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's incredible. That's really important, um, and the kinds of things that mobile technology does in the health field. You had that really interesting fellow you talked to who's a, a leader in that field on, in one of your podcasts. So that's really cutting-edge stuff. Uh, also, all the social entrepreneur stuff is so important, and I think that is a real advance uh, in getting in tapping into ways to accelerate the kind of things that interesting and unique individuals can do in, when they you know, when they match themselves up with either mentors or, or or financial sources to through through internet or whatever to accelerate all kinds of development development changes. So um, I think it's a really different world with the internet and with the interconnectedness. It's a really different world with the multiple sources of, of private funding now through the foundations, et cetera. But the most important thing is that, that, I, that I found from starting out in, in, in this research that I did in a, in a development project, and I've continued this kind of approach throughout my career, is listen carefully to what the heck the people want and the people know about before you design anything, before you start throwing money and consultants and everybody else at whatever you call the problem. Because what are they saying about it? And if you don't do that, then it doesn't matter if you're going to give them cellular devices or whatever. You've got to you know, be approaching this thing in a way that are supposed to benefit. Final question. You've given us a couple of pieces of advice along the way as we've talked over the last almost hour here. 
But the final question is one I ask every Terms of Reference guest here on the show, and that's if you had one or two pieces of advice that you would give to either somebody starting out a career or transitioning a career into development and aid about how to be successful and how to create that satisfying career, what are those critical pieces of advice? Get a grounding in the reality of the people you're trying to benefit. Start out that way. Find out a way to, to do that, whether it's an internship, whether it's a volunteer opportunity, whether it's Peace Corps or working with an NGO that you know can get you a grassroots experience or an experience with the kind of people that you're trying to benefit. You have to start out that way, I think. That's the only way, way it makes sense. Another is to, the, when you have an idea that there's a specific technical area that you want to learn about, go for it. And, the, and to go for it doesn't have to mean graduate school, but it certainly could very meaningfully be graduate school, but it could also be intense working on the internet and research and talking to people and doing informational interviews. That could be enough to get you sufficient information and, and knowledge to launch into something. I've listened to you know some of your podcasts, people that go off and, and change careers and go off and start an NGO. I mean, they do it through research, but the research doesn't have to be formal research. It could be all kinds of different ways to figure out things and the ways in which you can apply what you, what you think you can do to a particular problem. So those are a couple of things I would recommend. David, thank you so very much for your time today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Me too, Stephen. Thanks. It's been really fun. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. 